0: Bismillah rahim Yes, yes, y'all, what's going on? This is Baraka Blue, and you're tuned into Path and Present Podcast. Sending love and light to you and yours, wherever you may be in the cosmos. This episode is with Dr. Professor Leonard Lewison, who is one of the world's uh, chief specialists in Persian Sufi poetry. He's someone whose work I've been following for a while. He's written extensively on... Everyone from Rumi to Hafez to Sa'adi to others, he's translated a lot of Persian poetry. He's worked with Robert Bly on translations of Hafez, and he's written a lot of interesting articles on the symbolism of Sufi poetry. Um, He wrote a great article on the Sama, which is the, the audition or the sacred listening ceremonies, Um, particularly as Mavlana Rumi understood their power for transporting one into ecstatic states. There's so much that he's done that I've benefited from as someone who uh, is deeply in love and inspired by the tradition of Persian Sufi poetry, but is not a Persian speaker. So um, I'm not going to be too verbose. I'll uh, put some links so that you can check out his work. But One of the things to mention that he's been doing is something called the Maulana Rumi Review, which is a publication um, that he is the editor of. And they put out an annual collection of articles about Maulana Rumi, about his writing, about his life, about the Mevlevi order that was inspired by him, about all type of aspects um, relating to Rumi. And it's something that's academically rigorous, but at the same time, I find a lot of those articles also deeply spiritually inspiring and uh, have a profound effect on the heart. It's not just uh, all in the head. So I would encourage people to check that out. He's also a professor at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. So I was able to sit with him on a recent tour in the UK, and we spoke about a whole range of things. Uh, Primarily, we looked at Rumi, Hafez, and then the tradition of Persian Sufi poetry more generally. Uh, It was a great blessing to sit with him, and uh, I hope to be able to follow it up, because this was just a a drop in the ocean, as it were. All right, y'all, if you want to support the podcast, send love, send likes, send prayers. Share it with anybody who you think it might connect with, Um, you know, subscribe on iTunes, like, rate, all that stuff. It helps. Uh, it helps it spread. And then if you have the financial means to support, uh, we would greatly appreciate that as well. And you can do that on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash path and present. And that allows you to give whatever amount is is easy for you on a monthly basis. Yes, yes, y'all. It's all love. All right. Um, I'm just going to say over and out, I'm recording this from Chicago, had a beautiful retreat with Iman, inner city Muslim, uh, action network. I was a powerful, powerful time with many uh, of the great artists that inspire me from the United States and, um, doing a retreat, uh, Zawi North America this weekend, which is, um with Dr. Omar Farooq Abdullah, and is focusing on the concept of the fitrah, the primordial human nature, the inherent uh, soul and spirit of the human being. So I look forward to that. I'm going to be reciting at that, but uh, yeah, that's all for now. Um, I'll have some dates in the next podcast, but that's basically what I have in the immediate future. November, mid November, I'll be in Malaysia for a conference. I think it's the 17th, 18th, and 19th called The Sacred Path of Love. If you're interested in that and you're in Malaysia, you can check out uh, my Facebook for more details. All right, y'all. One love. So, um, I guess we could start by Mm -hmm. what got you into Persian. Poetry, Sufi poetry, what was your pathway in to devote your life to that?
1: Um, In my father's library, I came across uh, Nicholson's Rumi Poet and Mystic, which A.J. Arbery Arbery, had put together with a selection of Nicholson's verse translations from the Masnavi uh, that he'd put together uh, right after Nicholson's death. And I was 16 or 15 years old at that time, and um, I was absorbed in writing poetry, and especially was very interested in the surrealists and in European schools of poetry at that time. And I immediately understood that there was something extraordinary about Rumi uh, in terms of the metaphysical depth of this poetry, which was unlike anything else I'd ever read. And uh, it wouldn't leave me. I, I just I was just so impressed by it. And I had two reactions. One is that this could all be fake or phony, mm. and the other is that it must be either true or 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 or, uh, or beyond my comprehension. I decided that the latter was the truth. So uh, it, it stayed with me that I needed to learn Persian and and uh, and be able to read Rumi. So eventually. I ended up going to Iran in a few years' time, before my teens were over and and living there and getting my BA there and, you know, learning Persian.
0: And this was in the 70s?
1: This, was, uh, this would have been around 1970 that this uh, encounter with Rumi in my father's library occurred. He had a huge library. Um, and then in 1973, I ended up going to Iran.
0: So yeah. what was it like yeah. in the mid-70s in Iran, learning about Sufism, learning the language, uh, pre-revolution. Like, what was that like? Um,
1: well, it was a very dynamic uh, place. Uh, uh, and um, after a few months in Tehran, I moved to Shiraz and enrolled in Pahlavi University, which was uh, based on the model of the University of Pennsylvania. And um, so I enrolled in a BA in in the Department of History, and all the classes were taught in English because it was modeled on the University of Pennsylvania, Uh, although those classes in Persian literature and in history itself were taught in Persian, although this was supposedly not supposed to be done, but the students persuaded the teachers to teach in Persian. So I had to learn Persian very quickly and to get up to that level um but uh it was a very dynamic place uh uh people there was an arts festival which occurred every year in shiraz sponsored by the queen uh all sorts of companies from abroad would come peter Brook came the royal shakespeare company came um so it was very dynamic some of the greatest singers of persian uh, classical poetry were were just beginning to blossom and Becoming known like Shahjadyan and Padisa. Um the Iranians are, were the most hospitable people in the world uh, that I'd ever encountered. And at that age, of course, one is charming and young, and uh, I, I got along with everyone, and um, and uh, I I was having a wonderful time. I was living not far from the tomb of Hafez and not far from the tomb of Sadi, which I visited on a regular basis. So uh, I had a idyllic time for about five years mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm.
0: So it was Rumi that drew you, but now that you've kind of lived in the world of Persian poetry, Persian literature for these decades, um, is Rumi still your favorite or do you have a favorite Persian Sufi poet? Um,
1: the, the, the answer is that the the wisdom of the, these Sufi poets uh, comes from everywhere and everyone. Um, uh, Rumi is a, is a a special case because every word that he uttered, whether it's prose or poetry comes out of an ecstatic state, which points to a higher metaphysical level, which guides the soul to God. Um, So, there's that quality of rumi which is um which is always leading back to the ultimate reality um and um when you read his his poetry in persian um you're always he's always teaching he's you, he's always drawing you forward and um the interesting thing about rumi just to div- uh, digress on him slightly is that um he's uh Always teaching you um, in in a in a sort of inimitable way. Uh, it's almost if he's the supreme teacher, um, and um, every uh, sentence he says, you you need to hear the next sentence, uh, and so it's it's you're you're always being drawn into into the beauty of his his writing and 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 the profundity of it. Um, so. Uh, And this is especially true of the Masnavi. Um, So it's a kind of miraculous eloquence coupled with wisdom, which always gives you a direction. Um, I mean, I've never failed to open the Masnavi over a period of three or four decades without immediately finding the guidance I needed. In fact, he's one of the main books that's used for divination Mm -hmm. um, in Persian. Um, and so he's, all, he's constantly providing guidance. I mean, he, he's, he's the I Ching <laughs> uh, amplified several times over. Um, so that's one aspect of Rumi, of course, the deep mystical side and the deep spiritual side. Uh, there are other poets like Hafez, um, probably number two, who again is used for divination, purposes of divination, he again he's known as the tongue of the invisible so he's always re- relating to the angelic world the, the 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 other world and and always giving you guidance from that that realm um, he's called lessono babe the 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 tongue of the invisible um so um and and then there are other poets such as Sadi again he's a uh, someone who uh is inimitable in his writing and in, in commun- in, and in terms of the language of love, he's, uh, you know, a great, great love poet. And in, and, and in terms of just practical worldly wisdom, um, he's the Alexander Pope and Benjamin Franklin rolled into one uh, with the eloquence of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. So um, and that's one of the amazing things about the Persian language in general is that we you have two or three poets of the level of John Donne but of the quality of 10 times the amount of John Donne. And Hmm. you have two or three poets of the level of Shakespeare um, and several poets of the level of Milton and Dante. And of course, much of this is untranslated. Hmm. So it's a a rich mine of of world civilization, world culture and world literature.
0: Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there that um, I'd like to hear more about, but I read the book that you edited about Hafez Mm -hmm. and um, there was a lot in there that I learned, but I was wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit about some of the the themes that you brought out in that book, which is that Hafez there's this debate over Hafez, particularly because Rumi, it seems is pretty explicitly basing what he's talking about in the Quran and Hadith. And you uh, showed me in your library upstairs, there's whole texts showing the the Quranic verses that are, Rumi uses in the Masnavi, as well as the Hadith literature. But uh, Hafez seems a little bit more, you know, you could take it either way, as far as his metaphors and his imagery. And he's very critical of, um, you know, not only the scholars, which Rumi can also be too, but He's even critical of the Sufis and critical of, of all these these uh, these things. But you bring out this concept of the inspired libertine mm-hmm. and uh, this rebelliousness as as far as I understand it, really emphasizing the the his this dislike of religious hypocrisy and to be like radical authenticity. So maybe you could speak a little bit about that and how fast.
1: Yeah, um, the inspired libertine is, is, is called rend in Persian. And rend literally is from the carpenter's plane, you know, something that shaves off excess. Mm. Um, so what, what, what you're encountering in this term um, is several things. First of all, rend, in common parlance, it means rogue, It means scoundrel. Mm. It means knave. Um, somebody who's duplicitous, uh, somebody who's an opportunist. So that's the negative side. And the Rends, the Rendon, the the those inspired libertines, so to speak, were simply libertines who were scoundrels and knaves, and they were mafioso thugs. <laughs> so from from the point of view of of the socio political uh, situation in in 14th century Iran in Shiraz where Hafez lived um then they were the real rulers of the city there of shiraz and then the the kings had to watch out that they didn't get on the wrong side of the mafia there mm. um and but the ren was used by persian poets for about 150 years before hafez to signify the spiritual saint the highest level of 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 a sort of spiritual achievement someone who didn't care whether they had a good name or a bad name. Mm-hmm. And they belonged to what was called the school of blame or the malomati tradition. Mm-hmm. And they deliberately incurred blame from the public so as to mortify their souls and, and to, and to um, lower themselves in the eyes of others and, and be raised in, in, in other words, to achieve humility and then, and, and to, to be raised before God in, 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 in a kind of, um, uh, uh, that that God understood who they were. Mm-hmm. So um, this term was used, you see, that they took the negative social terms and they turned them into positive epithets mm-hmm. so that, that the Ren becomes the symbol of, as I said, the highest saint. Um, so uh, then there's a whole movement among the Sufis at that time it was a social movement which came out of the Malamati school, which is called La Kalandari, or the or the way of the wild men. And these were these were groups of Sufis who would wander around and shave their facial hair uh, and sometimes walk naked through the streets and generally uh, behave in a scandalous way um, under the auspices that they were breaking them, themselves and mortifying themselves a bit like the sadhus in india mm. today so you had these groups of people and of course there was a whole genre of poetry called the kalandaria genre where, which hafez wrote poems in that genre and so there were three or four genres there was the malamati genre the school of blame poetry there was the kalandaria poetry the wild man poetry there was the Cabrier poetry the zoroastrian symbolist verse mm. again uh, an antinomian type of, of 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 rhetoric, and then there was the Harabati poetry, the school of the Tavern of Ruin, mm-hmm. uh, and all of these were were deb- deliberately scandalous ways of expressing yourself. But again, they 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 refer to the highest levels of spirituality. It's interesting that Thoreau, in his Walden, uh, says that um, the Orientalists tell us that that Kabir's poetry has four levels of meaning. But today we find it objectionable if a writer has more than one level of meaning uh, in his poetry. Um, so to get back to what you said about it can be taken either way, the essence of Hafez's symbolism is what's called the poetic device of Iham. And Iham means amphibology or ambiguity. So there's a deliberate um, oscillation between the profane and the sacred. Um, so what is radically profane can actually be very sacred as well, and vice versa. And one of the reasons is that you can't, that, that God can be perceived, um, that, that the world can be perceived as either a mirror or uh, a veil. So if we take the world as a, as a veil, then you, you follow the path of austerity and self-mortification and asceticism, which was not the path that Hafez took, and you want to turn away from the world. You can take it as a mirror that the whole world reflects God. Um, and so Hafez is uh, uh, followed this path, which was called Shahed Bazi or Nazar Bazi, where he he contemplated beauty in the world and he took female beauty, male beauty, all beauty as epiphanies and theophanies of, of the divine. So it was a school of love. And this was, this is his Maz So we all know that we're attracted to love poetry. There's nobody that doesn't like love poetry unless they're psychologically sick. So, um, he wrote stunning love poetry. Some of it quite erotic, uh, but nonetheless, it can be interpreted in many, on many levels. Um, and because of the, the multi-level layer of the symbolism, um, it communicates itself to the soul in a way that the dream does. You can have a dream, and that dream may, may mean more to you than a hundred days of consciousness. But you don't know exactly what the dream means, but you know what it means to you. So it's communicating to you and it convinces you in a non-rational way. It, it's truth. So the, the poetry of Hafez is, is similar. It, it, they're they're multi layers and it's convincing. It convinces the unconscious. Uh, it, so it's, it's, it's something that that you are converted to his religion without you professing his religion. Mm. So for that reason, you have atheists who love Hafez and you have pious mullahs who love Hafez and you have... Communists who love Hafez, and uh, you have all uh, hues and, and colors of people that love Hafez, and he's he's the most popular poet, uh, and he's on every Iranian's and every Afghan's bookshelf. Um, so um, uh, this is one of you know the incredible achievements of his of, of his divan. And again, as I said, it's taken they use it for the purposes of divination because. He's he he predicts the future. You can open, and he'll say something which exactly corresponds to your your condition and your state and your circumstance. So that's that's some of the the, um, the some of the qualities of Hafez. And of course, he's one of the most frequently commented upon poets in Persian. Um, so I have in my library at least five commentaries. I mean, one of the commentaries written in the seventeenth century. 5,000 pages long, four volumes, very small print, and it was written in in the 17th century by a Sufi in in, in Lahore. Um, and a very profound commentary. So people devote their lives to, to studying Hafez, commenting on it. And there's a special subsection in, in Iranian studies known as Hafez and Asi. Mm. It's like Shakespeare studies. So you have a, a special stage of, of Hafezology. Uh, another aspect is that... Uh, after the Quran, people quite often memorize the Divan of Hafez because he, he, he encapsulates such wisdom. So uh, you, you can go to the tomb of Hafez and find 14-year-old boys and girls from their grammar school singing Hafez um, So because that's part of the Iranian culture. You, you memorize it, you, you recite it, and uh, you'll get into a taxi and the taxi driver will recite you a verse of Hafez or Saadi before you get out. It's just part of their culture. They imbibe it. They, they live it, um, and the poet—it's a—it's still a bardic civilization. Mm. So that's part of the richness uh, of Hafez's language. Which so everyone is a is a Hafezologist. In fact, you can you can lose friends very easily if you make the wrong interpretation of a verse that somebody else doesn't like. Uh, they will, they won't talk to you again because that verse belongs to me, and I know I'm right. And mm-hmm. so your interpretation is wrong. And so it's a very serious matter.
0: Mm. <laughs> can't it's like we say in the West, don't mm. talk about religion or politics at the dinner table, but in mm. there it's, or, or Hafez, be careful what you say.
1: <laughs> but you didn't address this question of why Hafez, there are so many anti-Sufi uh, remarks in Hafez. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's very simple, actually. Um, in the 14th century in Iran, Hafez dies in 1389. From the middle of the 13th century to the end of the 14th century is the time of the efflorescence of the institution of the Hanava, which is the Sufi Lodge. And this, the efflorescence of this institution takes place all over modern-day Afghanistan, modern-day Pakistan, northern India, Anatolia, which is Turkey, and Iran. Okay, and Khorasan, northern Iran, and, and parts of Central Asia. So you have a flourishing of the Sufi institution and the blossoming of the Sufi orders. So you had the major orders, you have the Kobraviya, the Sohravardiya, and the naqshbandi These are the three main Su- Sufi orders that prevailed at that time in, um, in, in the Persianate world. In other words, the world that was sort of influenced by Persian culture and where Persian is the main sort of lingua franca. Um, And that includes Anatolia. I mean, people in Anatolia spoke Turkish, but uh, Persian was a a main literary language. So from the death of Rumi in in 1273 to the death of Hafez in 1389 is the time when this institution where these main Sufi orders, the the, Nakhshbandiya, the Suhlavardiya, and the Kobraviya, which are the main orders, and then you had minor orders such as the Khadriya, uh, and the name of Jalaiya and, and and various others, uh, the Yasawiya and etc. Um, these orders became what one one literary one uh, Islamic historian Marshall Hodgson called a mass institutionalized religion. This becomes the main sort of central religion. In, in other words, Sharia minded and Sharia centric Islam, which is based in the madrasa and the mosque. In in a way becomes marginalized. I mean, this, the Sufis become a dominant institution, and they're everywhere. You every time you walk out your door, you see somebody in a Sufi robe walking down the street. Um, and as one of the great hagiographers, or great uh, uh, one of the great biographers of the poets, named Dolat Shah al wrote, he says, "Harchi har mi shavat." Hardship, um, whatever becomes uh, excessive becomes despicable. <laughs> so the Sufi uh, organization, of course, becomes a mass institutional religion, and mm-hmm. so there 's an abaissement de niveau mental. there 's a, there's a falling of the mental level of it and the mm-hmm. spiritual level. So there are many charlatans, there are many um, uh, people who are just quacks. Uh, uh, going under the name of Sufis. And so this, uh, of course, uh, if you are somebody of of the highest literary level of Hafez, even if you're pro-Sufi, even if you're pro-mystical, which he was, uh, you, uh, he is also a social critic. And so he had to attack um, these negative manifestations uh, of Sufi fakery and demagoguery, which were very popular at this time as well. I mean, he, he praised authentic Sufis and he attacked the the false ones. Um, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that if you look at Sufi poetry, going back to the 12th century, early 12th century, late 11th century, the time of Sanai and Attar, <coughs> you find that there's something... Um, that that one aspect of the Sufi poetry of the time itself is anti-Sufi. In other words, um, the, the their their whole. For instance, Sanai has written a, a masnavi called the Enclosed Garden of the Truth, um, and and um, the Hadi Hadi, Hadi Al harigad and he has major sections of that masnavi which are on the criticism of false Sufis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you find, even in poets such as Haju Kermani, who was contemporary with Hafez, he was, Hafez's senior died a decade before him, and he wrote Masnavis as well, uh, with sections on criticism of the Sufis. Mm-hmm. Although, he was a devotee of Amin Adina Balyani, who was uh, the, the Murshid of the Khazruni order, Near Shiraz, that that and and Balioni wrote a divan himself that Hafez imitated, and Hafez praised Balioni in one of his uh, fragments. So the point is that um, uh, anti- you you don't find any Sufi poets. I've not found one Sufi poet, and I've read about fifty of them contemporary with Hafez who say anything positive about the word sufi Mm -hmm. the word sufi itself has a negative connotation because of the social efflorescence of the whole sufi institution that prevailed at that time but that's not to say they were anti-sufi they were anti this type of public sufism Um, and you find the same thing among anti-clerical writers such as john bunyan Mm -hmm. you know in pilgrim's Mm -hmm. progress Mm -hmm. you find the same attacking of the of the exoteric clergy in his writing, or in William Law, for that matter, the great English mystic um, of the 18th century. So uh, this is this is quite common in, in religious writing, uh, and it's just because we are so far away from the social-political circumstances that for us it seems strange. I mean, mm, uh, Spencer wrote The Fairy Queen, and it was in praise of a Queen Elizabeth, but who remembers that? Who knows that... That you know the, the the historical political circumstances behind his symbolism there. So it's the same with Hafez. You you have to know the history and all of these nuances of the of the development of the the Sufi institutions to understand the 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 various uh, allusions. Right. Yeah. You
0: know. And especially when with Sufism, which seems to be so much about cutting through egotism and ostentatiousness and anything which exalts the ego, you know, and, you know, there's this idea that to, if you, if you take the Sufi path and you're wearing the garb and you're talking the talk that everyone's going to think you're holy and enlightened, but that can become in itself, the great veil to awakening. And of Mm. course there's like the, there's a saying in Arabic, which is, you know, of course from the early period, but it's, Mm. Sufism was a reality without a name, and now it's a name without a reality. This is
1: actually from Sadi. He, mm-hmm. he he paraphrases it, and he says in the Golistan, mm-hmm. "Yeki az mashoyekif sham poursidan as hakiqat-e tazavof, mm-hmm. goft aval taui fei budan dar jahan parishan, vali dar mani jam vaqnuun guruhi hastan bemanii." Jam Vali Parishan. And so he says, one, they asked one of the sheikhs of Syria about the reality of Sufism. And he said, they were first uh, a tribe of people in the world who were outwardly disunited but inwardly united and one. And now they're, and this is again the time of the efflorescence of the Hanukkah institution. Now they are a group of people in the world who are outwardly united but inwardly disunited. Mm. Um, so um, this is yeah this is um, normal. Um, this is again. So this part of the uh, of course Sadi wrote the Bustan, a great masnavi, where he's he's praising Junaid and Bayazid and Shibli and Nuri and 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 all the great classical Sufis of the 10th century. Uh, but again, he can have that that, that critical uh, outlook on on the actual physical Sufi tradition because of. Uh, of 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 what's of 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 the social situation that that existed for the for the Sufis at that time.
0: Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe comment and explain the the idea of the Madhabi ishq. Um, I know that of course Imam al ghazali Abu Hamid al ghazali is 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 very famous, um, and in the in the Arab world is is, is very famous, although in many circles not as well known as as, as he was. But I know that his brother, Ahmed Ghazali, uh, I believe, wrote the kind of the first text about the metaphysics of love in Persian. And it was very influential. So, And it seems like that this madhab of ishq was particular to the Persian world and had a huge influence, whereas in, in the Arabic world, of Islam, um, you don't see an, an entire movement like that, where there's, there may be an individual here or there. So I was wondering if maybe you could comment on that. Um, yeah, uh,
1: I just, there's so many different dimensions and levels. Um, but we have to begin, of course, with the Quran and with the Hadith, um, um there's a great book uh, which has just come out about two or three years ago called Love in the Holy Quran by Prince Ghazi of Jordan. Um, and it, uh, one of the interesting things that he explains is that there are four or five different divine names which are actually names that mean love or beloved. So, for instance, you have divine name Al-Wadud, mm-hmm. which means the beloved. Uh, you have Habib. You have many different names. Um... And uh so the, the the whole idea of love is 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 um very much prevalent in the Quran. So there it's there, it's there in a in a sort of in the in a in a sort of seed-like form there from the very beginnings of Islam. And then you have certain hadiths um which actually um speak about love, um which are always uh, quoted by the Sufis. So um, uh, there are many, but uh, these, these hadiths are, are, are used to, to justify their, their ideas. Um, and I'll, I'll come to them in a moment. But what happens is that um, you have, in the beginning of the Sufi tradition, in the time of Hassan Abbasra and Rabah, you have a an, a great emphasis on on asceticism, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the Sufis are turning away from the world uh, and 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 cultivating their souls and 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 they're inward gazing, their are Um and uh, so this goes on until about the end of the ninth century, and then you have the development of the tradition of love with figures such as uh, Sal Tustari, and then with the 10th century, you have who wrote the first mystical interpretation of the Quran, very much love-centric as well. And then you have the development of the schools of love centered around Halaj in particular in 10th century Baghdad. So you have the whole school of Baghdad developing with Junaid and Shibli and Nuri and, and, and Halaj at that time. And Halaj writes the first treatise where he Equates love with the divine essence. So um, you know there, there are many different attributes and, and names of God, and and one of the the names, of course, is rahman or Rahim, and 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 of course in in Hebrew, the one of the commentations of of that name is love, mm-hmm. uh, and the Sufis uh, incline towards that because love is an all encompassing reality which everything begins in love and everything ends in love. So around this time in the Quran commentaries of people like uh, Sal Tustadi and Jafar Sadek, who is the sixth Shi'ad Imam, he he has sections from his Quran commentary, which were preserved in Solami's Hagal Tasir, where he places love at the highest uh, of 12 spiritual stations it's, the, it's, the, it's the, 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 the 11th station, and afterwards is ravishment. So it's, the high, it's one of the highest stations. And then, of course, Halaj, with his doctrine of love as a divine essence, that's taken over by Avicina, by Abu Ali Sino, the great peripatetic philosopher who writes a treatise on love called Resale Filesh, um, where he, he speaks of, of God as being the beloved, the lover, and love. So these three become united in God. Um, so the Sufis begin, when they use the word love, they're actually talking about God. <laughs> um, so uh, this is a, 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 a theory, a mystical theory, which is elaborated over the centuries, and especially in the school of Halaj. So the main, papers, uh, uh, the, the main upholders of the school of Halaj are, um, are um, Abul Hassan Adel uh, who wrote a book called *The Book of the Inclined*, a left towards the 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 And so it's a, it's a it's the first mystical treatise on love, basically. And he he uses the the language of Avicenna, he uses the language of Halaj, and he develop he 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 tells all the different mystical theories of, of about love. And then his disciple is Ibn Khafif, uh, who again is a member of the school of Baghdad. Uh, lives he although he lives in Shiraz in in Iran, he's Very much in that Halajian tradition. And, um, he writes a book on love as well, although he's very much an ascetic. Um, and then you have the blossoming of the first works on love mysticism, which is Al Ghazali, Abu Hamed Al Ghazali's brother, uh, Ahmed Al Ghazali, who writes the savone Al Oshok, or the experiences of the lover, of the lovers. And that's, the first sort of major mystical treatise on love, and his disciple, who is the founder of Sufi metaphysics, Enl al Hamadani, who dies in eleven thirty six, he's you know he's age thirty three, but he's a you know amazing genius uh, again of the highest level, highest spiritual level, and uh, he writes a, a treatise called the Tamhidat or the Mystic Prognostications, pro- pro- Prostications, you could call it. And um, that has a, a huge long section on on, on the Shah Head, wit- the divine witness of beauty, and on love and on the lover. And so the whole language of what's called rose and nightingale mysticism, which is developing in Persian poetry of Sana'i at this time, goes into Sufi formal Sufi metaphysics. So there's a whole blossoming of the school of love. So the language of Sufism, especially in Persian becomes foremost a language of love instead of a language of theology and a language of kalam and, 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 you know, debating the divine names and, and hair splitting over theological principles. It's, it's a, it's a mystical language, which is using poetic symbolism. And so um, you find this in prose and in poetry. So the, the, even uh, at this same time, a few decades after al-Khazad, you have, the composition in Persian uh, of the the greatest Quran commentary in Persian called Kashul uh, Asrar bar Rashidid in which is in, in the modern Persian edition, it's it's like 10 volumes. And again, he's using the symbolism of love um, to interpret the Quran. And, and when he, he has three different levels of interpretation of the Quran, but the Sufi level, which he has, which is the third level, um, all concentrates, uh, when, when, when it can, on this Mas on this religion of love. And, and he, Mebudi, took it from, uh, took uh, most, most of his ideas from his spiritual master, who was Abdullah Ansari, mm. um, who had written this treatise called Sat Meidon, or The Hundred Fields of Spiritual Progress, um, on the spiritual stations in Sufism, the first station being tobe or repentance, and the last station, lo and behold, is the 101st station, which is love. And 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 Ansari says, all of the other stations, the station that follows bagabillah, or, or subsistence in God, is love. So all of these stations are absorbed in the top station, which is love. So there you go, Um, uh, you know, the... the so from that time on, we're talking about the middle of the 12th century, beginning of the 12th century, um, the whole Persian tradition becomes a tradition where love is spoken of as God and love becomes the main topic of interest. And then there's a famous Arabic hadith or Arabic um, proverb, which is, kan the, 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 the the figurative is a bridge to the real. Mm-hmm. So the, the Sufis reasoned, well, what about human love? What about the love between a man and a woman? What, where, how does that relate to this divine love? And they, they came up with the theory, that, of which I call the theory of bridge love, mm-hmm. that this love, the human love, is a bridge to the divine love. So you have to have human love. And that's where this erotic, erotic poetry becomes so relevant, because... God becomes uh, symbolized through the tress, the eyebrow, the lip, um, the curl, the coquettish glance, and there's a whole literature, symbolic literature, based on the, the parts of the beloved body, which is an erotic literature. And the Sufis are using this literature, and everybody knows it's a, it's a very hermetic discourse but everybody knows what it means it's publicly hermetic everybody knows it uh, and it's used by everyone and so it becomes integral to normal conversation this erotic love poetry and it can be interpreted both ways and so the poetry of hafez and 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 sadi sadi dies in 1293 hafez dies in 1389 which is where where persian poetry the love poetry really blossoms. All of this is based on this Sufi background of, of the, of the Mashabal Ej. Now, this background still continues to be relevant today. It's something that people, all Afghans, all Tajiks, all Iranians know backwards and forwards. And they're brought up with it. They, they breathe it. And they express their love lives and their, their emotional lives and their, their, their affections using this language, this symbolic language. Um, and even the modern poets who are following T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound and, and the latest, uh, 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 you know, latest modernist movements in poetry, they are using it still. So it's not, it's not something that's, uh, outdated, like you have in Japan, for instance, where Zen poetry is, is very rarely written anymore. Um, so this is, uh, something that continues to be relevant. Uh, today and in in the Arabic world, it's it's less relevant. It's there's there's less of this um, antinomian tradition, which is means anti against the law. So this whole tradition, which is sort of a scandalous, um, deliberately anti-religious, uh, deliberately anti-pietistic, but at the same time very Sufi and very mystical, is. Is less, uh, is less emphasized uh, for a number of reasons to do with the history of theology and the history of the Islamic sciences in the Arabic language, which don't exist so much in Persian.
0: Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads into one of my questions, which I know you've thought about and written about, which is that the Persian poets, um, obviously Rumi is is very popular in the west some say the number one selling poet and it's a household name in fact beyonce and jay-z just named their child Rumi. i don't know if you know that (laughs) but uh so the number one pop star um and hafez is pretty well known but in fact for quite some time you know uh, western thinkers writers poets have been drawing inspiration from this tradition from the you know, romantics to the transcendentalists, Emerson being a good example. Um, And so I'd love to hear you um, talk about that. But also I was thinking about the fact that it's not the same for Arabic poetry. You know, I mean, you don't see any, you know, these, these individuals being inspired necessarily by Arabic poetry, to my knowledge, whereas something about the Persian poetry translates well into the Western context, into a European context or an American context. So I'm wondering if you have any reflections, if you've thought about that, what translates so well to such a different cultural context? And, you know, many of these uh, poets were writing a thousand years ago. So, you know, time and space seem to not matter. Something translates.
1: Um,
0: Well, you know,
1: we somehow, we consider, us Westerners consider ourselves to belong to the first world. But in terms of poetry, we're not first world. We're really third world. Um, the Persian tradition has the richest poetic tradition in any language in the world. And when it comes to mysticism, the top mystical poet in any language of the world is Rumi. And this is not my assertion. It's that of Nicholson, who, who uh, translated all of the whole Masnavi into English. And so this is pretty well known. And pretty much accepted. Uh, I haven't heard of somebody coming along and trying to challenge Rumi's position as the top mystical poet in, in any language of the world. Now, the question is, did Goethe know of Rumi? Who who knew of Rumi in the, in the 19th century? Who of the great writers? And the answer is that no one did. Okay, so the answer then says, well, why? Well, because they had their ethnocentric blinders on and they, they were concentrating on Latin poetry, on Greek poetry and their own classical tradition and their own vernacular languages. So that's just the way the Western civilization was until when? Until basically the British went to India and you had the, the classics of, of Oriental, the Oriental classics published by Max Muller the translations of the Upanishads, and then at the end of the 18th century, Sir William Jones translating Hafez into English for the first time, into a very, uh, today, what's a very unreadable type of English language, Victorian language, which is, you know, today um, very uh, sentimental and and saccharine, and one, one can't really imbibe it anymore. But he had a pretty good understanding of the Sufi tradition, um, even before Sir William Jones in, in the, in the 17th century, 16th, late 16th, uh, late 16th, early 17th century, Jean Chardon, who, um, uh, a French, uh, diplomat and explorer went to Iran and he wrote a seven volume voyage on Paris. And he analyzed all the great Persian poets From Rumi to Hafez to Shabash Shadi, he wrote long sections of his book on Sufism, not to mention uh, describing the the civilization of Iran and Persia, uh, Persia called Persia at that time. So there was some knowledge of of Persia and Persian poetry um, at that time. Um, And uh, you even find references uh, to uh, Persia in Shakespeare, um, here and there in certain of his uh, his plays, so there is some knowledge. Uh, but the real knowledge of of, of Persian poetry only develops uh, when the works of Sir William Jones and other of the Orientalists, especially the German Orientalists, begin to be written in the middle of the nineteenth century. And so, one of these Orientalists is uh, is. Um, uh, Von, von Hammer Pergstall who translated the Divan of Hafez into German and he, trans- he translated the whole Divan with, with, um, with facing German text. Now this, this went, uh, uh, Emerson got hold of this and began translating Hafez uh, and the translations of Sadis Golistan, I think Francis Gladwin if I'm not mistaken, translated in the the middle of the 19th century into English as well. So Emerson, who was the founder of the Transcendentalist School, which is basically, the Transcendentalist School is basically the American Romantics. It's two names, but one school. Um, And they were, of course, the Romantic School is a school which is based on the Neoplatonic tradition. Now, Sufism is a Neoplatonic tradition. I mean, it's (laughs) half of the vocabulary of Sufism is a vocabulary taken from Greek Neoplatonism. Half, of the other half of it is a vocabulary taken from the Quran and, and the Hadith. Um, but there's no doubt of it when when the Sufi tradition actually develops in the 10th century in Baghdad. This is the same time that the Greek classics are being translated into Arabic. So there there was a, a there was a there was an interpenetration between these two. Schools: the development of the peripatetic school, the rationalist school, and the mystical school. And they're both using the same, similar vocabularies, especially in terms of psychology. So the point is that these Orientalists, uh, Sir William Jones and um, others, uh, Max Muller, uh, I don't know, uh, von Hammer-Pergstahl, and uh, people like um, uh, Winfield... Who at the end of the of the 19th century translated the Garden of Mystery or the Golsenar Raza Shavastadi into English, they all knew their Plotinus well, they all knew their Plato well. Uh, and of course, you you don't become the greatest writer of in American history of the 19th century as Emerson was if you don't read Plato and you don't know Plato backwards and forwards. And so um, the, the Romantic school is a school of platonists who are immersed in uh the love uh the love philosophy of plato uh shelley for instance translated the symposium from greek into into english he carried ficino's commentary on the symposium wherever he went and he read persian he knew persian and he translated from persian tennyson knew persian better than fitzgerald did (laughs) so you know these people were super sophisticated uh then in, in addition to greek and latin they knew persian they 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 were the the you know the modernist intellectuals of their day um the 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 teacher of omar uh, of fitzgerald who who translated hayam's rubayat um at cambridge university wrote an article in 1854 in fraser's mag- magazine for gen- for gentlemen and country uh uh fraser the general the, the, yeah country yeah, Fraser's Magazine for the Country, something like that. And he, he opens the article with, who has not heard of Hafez, the great poet of Persia? <laughs> it's 1854. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the English intellectuals at that time, they knew uh, about this. They'd read it. Um, of course, you couldn't open a magazine in the Atlantic Monthly with that, that title today, mm-hmm. with that first a sentence today, a because nobody knows it anymore. It's, it's mm-hmm. it lost knowledge. So um um so there there is an interface between the neoplatonic uh uh thought of Plato and which is very similar to the Sufi theories of love um nobody has really written on this uh they used to know it better in the 19th century and they do it today because nobody reads greek and latin anymore but um the orientalists at that time did and so they when they came across these translations by Sir William Jones, or they did their own translations, they welcomed with open arms, the poets of Persia. They welcomed Sadi, They welcomed Hafez. They welcomed Rumi. Um, and Emerson translated quite a lot of, of, of Rumi and Hafez into, you find, if you go to his collected poems, you'll see that he's translated translations from the Persian. Um, most of them are actually translations from German because he didn't know Persian. So, um, uh, so this was very popular at, that time, at this time, um, and uh, it, was, it was very fashionable, too. I mean, Emerson's pen name was Sadi, um, And so um, you can actually uh, take the poetry of Shelley uh, and interpret it in a Sufi manner, a lot of it. In fact, I, I had the great fortune of attending a lecture by Martin Ling's. Uh, some twenty years ago, where he did precisely that, he he tried to interpret the poetry of Keats and Shelley in a Sufi manner, and it was rather convincing until Catherine Rain, who was in the audience and the, the world's greatest, one of the world's greatest expert on William Blake, stood up and and kindly and very gently reminded him that this is actually Neoplatonic as well.
0: Mm, <laughs> mm, mm. So I know you have the. Maulana Rumi Review. Uh, Maybe you could speak about your intention behind that and that project and um, just some of the articles in it and and what you're trying to bring out with it.
1: Okay. Well, again, um, when we, we, as as you know, when Robert Bly uh, encouraged Coleman Barks to free these birds from their cages, referring to Nicholson's a uh, very dry and pedantic translation of the Masnavi into English, uh, referring to these, the, this uh, asking Coleman Barks to do this. This occurred in, in I believe, in in the in the late seventies, and thanks to Coleman Barks and his uh, attempts at re, at renditions of of Rumi's into Rumi's poetry into English poetry, uh, he became a, a a best-selling poet in the U.S. Uh, and so the rage and fashion for Rumi's poetry, which existed in the 80s and part of the 90s, rivaled that of Omar Khayyam, which existed in, in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s and 1910 and 1920 in, in Europe, in, in, in England and the U.S. So um, he becomes a very fashionable poet. So basically what happens what's happened in the last three or four decades in the U S and to some degree in Europe is the internationalization of Rumi. He's, he's become, he's, he's, we brought him into our domestic home life, even though he wrote in, in the 13th century in Anatolia. So he's become one of us. So this means that at the present day, we have the journal of Dostoevsky studies who, who wrote in Russian. We have the journal of certain obscure uh and or famous uh you know poets who wrote in Italian. There's a journal there's a journal of Dante studies. There's a you know, so there there are journals dedicated to to various poets in um that wrote in non English in, in, in languages which are not English, which are published in English. So if Rumi is the best selling poet, then what 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 would be wrong with having a journal dedicated to him, especially since he's the the world's top mystical poet. So uh, thanks to the funding which uh, we secured from the Rumi Institute in Cyprus uh, back in um, 2009, uh, we launched the, the Rumi, the Molina Rumi Review uh, at the British Library then uh, attended by the ambassador from Turkey and the uh, cultural attaché from Iran and someone from Tajikistan representing the government. And so it was, it was launched formally, and it's now in its eighth issue. The eighth issue is in press. Um, and um, basically, my concern as the editor is to bring the authentic understanding of Rumi as he, as he is authentically interpreted by the scholarly and academic community in Iran and in Afghanistan, in the Persian-speaking world, into the English-speaking world. So um, at the same time, I, I want the review to be literary um, so it's accessible to um, the youth. Uh, so we have a section where, where his poetry is translated into, into literary poetry. In other words, it's not just um, pedantic uh, literal translations. It's actual literary translations. So uh, we have a, a group of I have a group of advisory council of various people, including Franklin Lewis and Alan Williams and Carl Ernst and, and others who are in this field and, and have written on Rumi and they've contributed to the journal. And, um, it seems to be very, very well, it seems to have been very well received so far. Um, there, are uh, something like 50 libraries worldwide that have university libraries who have subscribe to it several other institutions and um so it's it's a niche a niche for for those who love rumi and um uh i should say that you know in iran itself where rumi is is studied in the universities um in every university in iran you will find someone who teaches a special course on Rumi. And this is becoming true even in the United States now. So you have at least 10 universities where there'll be a special course just on Rumi. Um, So he's he's become an international figure, and rightly so, and he's he's the most frequently interpreted poet in Persian, um, probably in any Islamic language. So there are more commentaries written on Rumi than on any other poet. He's probably the most frequently interpreted and commented upon writer after the after the quran itself so um it makes sense that there should be such a journal um and it's been very well received i uh i can say um and uh i hope uh, we'll we'll have the strength to continue for many more years
0: i hope so um well yeah i mean i've taken a lot of your time and i should be getting my train soon but okay. if people want to uh for instance, find the review or any of your other work, what's the best way to, to do so?
1: Um, the, there is a, uh, a website. You can just go uh, and Google Molina Rumi Review and there's a special web page at the University of Exeter. The, the Rumi, Molina Rumi Review is published at the University of Exeter uh, where I teach. And so you can go there and then we have in the actual review itself, we have a, a link which takes you to a page where you can subscribe to it by PayPal. Um, so that's available. Um, it, it, the institutional base for the Molina-Rumi Review is going to be changing from the University of Exeter. In 2019, it's going to be moving to the University of California at Irvine. So it will be based there, uh, and uh, inshallah, and it will continue uh, uh, for a few more centuries, we hope.
0: Hope so. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I mean I've benefited a lot. As someone who doesn't read Persian, um, it's it's beautiful to see these works being made accessible and um especially because there's so much interest in, in people like Rumi and others, it's nice to see that, you know, people can go from the memes and the very popular books and, and to and to dive deep and to take it deeper into the, the you know some real substantive works which explain the symbolism and some of the metaphysical worldview that inspire these writings. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Path and Present podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so in a few ways. One is word of mouth. And people hear about the podcast mostly from people like you who listen and like it and say, I know someone who would connect with this, who would feel this, who would enjoy this subject matter. So continue to share with your family and friends. Secondly, you can subscribe, rate and comment um, on the iTunes page of path and present subscribing means that the podcast will, each episode will come directly to you when we release it and rating and commenting means that it will be, grow and uh, come up in the iTunes rankings which will allow it to be uh, available and uh, seen by more people and then lastly you can support financially on Patreon Patreon is a site which allows people to give a small amount monthly to support um, art or any type of content and we have a Path and Present page on Patreon Patreon the link is on our SoundCloud page, SoundCloud slash Path and Present, and you'll find the Patreon link there. And yeah, you can support there. We're greatly appreciative of it. Uh, I guess lastly, lastly, keep us in your prayers, your positive thoughts, and your moments of remembrance. And thank you for tuning in and being part of the global Path and Present family. One love.